You are listening to This World of Humans, a science podcast focusing on the interface of biology and social science, coming to you from the podcast recording studio at John Jay College in New York City. For more information about today's topic, visit visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H. Hello and welcome to This World of Humans. I'm your host, Nathan Lentz. Your producer is Sam Anderson. And today we're going to talk about our genomes. Sam, I'm sure you know what a genome is. Yeah, it's something to do with our DNA. That's right. It's the full complement of DNA inside each one of our cells. Uh, every cell except sperm and egg have 46 long pieces of DNA, really long. The average chromosome is made of almost 150 million nucleotides. Wow. Yeah, and nucleotides are the building blocks of DNA. You can think of them as like little individual links on a really long chain. We have 46 of these chains in all our cells, hundreds of millions of links long for a total of about 6 billion total links in every cell. Whoa. Uh, now, the links are not all the same. There's four possible links. Uh, they're called the nucleotides. And the main way that we store information in our DNA is in the sequence of these different links. For simplicity, uh, we'll just call them A, C, G, and T. And so DNA works kind of like a big book of instructions written a very simple language of just four letters and no spaces. So I like to think of DNA as the very first language on Earth. Yeah, that's a huge book. Very, very big book. But there's a catch. And that's what we're here to talk about today. It turns out that only a very small portion of our genome, the, uh, the huge book of DNA, actually codes for anything. Uh, genes, which are the units of genetics... Uh, the things that actually provide usable instructions to the cells, uh, that only makes up like 3% of our genome. So what happens to the rest of it? Well, okay, so some of it is uh, made of what we call regulatory sequences, and they help the cells use the genes in really highly nuanced and subtle ways. They're like really complicated control switches that allow incredible fine-tuning of the expression of our genes, almost like a graphic equalizer. Kind of like what we're using to record this podcast right now. Y yeah, like a big soundboard, exactly like that. Um, and so obviously that part is important, but that still only accounts for another maybe 10 or 20 percent of our genomes. So what happens to the rest of it? Well, that's the big question, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Most people would say that somewhere around 70, 75 percent of our genome doesn't really do anything meaningful. It's just like tons and tons of gibberish letters in between the small sentences of real information. The small sentences being the genes? Yeah, exactly that. So another way to put it, and this is how I describe it in my book that will be out next year, um, I have a chapter on so-called junk DNA. Um, our genome is like little islands of important information surrounded by vast oceans of nothing. But all that DNA must do something, right? Or else, like, why do we even have it? That's the, So that's the issue. That's the question. That's what we want to discuss today. So Sam, let's bring our guest on board. Uh, while Sam is dialing him in, let me just introduce our guest. Uh, professor Dan Grauer is a professor of molecular evolution at the University of Houston. And what that means is he studies how our genome, how DNA, evolves over time in various species, but especially in humans. Uh, this field has always been doing great work, but it has enjoyed an explosion recently because of the advent of fast and cheap DNA sequencing. We can sequence whole genomes in a few weeks' time and for a few thousand dollars. And I want to I tell you just how dramatic that is. The first human genome took 13 years to sequence and cost about $300 million. I remember the big announcement. I was already a scientist at that point, uh, and that was a very dramatic event. But now we just do this like it's nothing. Uh, Professor Grauer has literally written the textbook on the topic of genome evolution, but it's a really controversial area. There's lots of big disagreements, and Professor Grauer has found himself right in the middle of them. 
Um, Sam, do we have him? Yes. Okay, welcome, Dr. Grauer. Uh, I have just given our listeners a little primer on the genome and how little of it codes for anything. Um, a bit more is found in you know regulatory sequences, but the vast majority of DNA doesn't do anything at all. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yes, I would say that uh, we call it this part junk DNA. And uh, the metaphor I use is that our genome is like the congressional register. It's mostly blah, blah, blah with no meaning, but sometimes there is something meaningful in it. Uh, wow, so I've never heard it compared to Congress, but um, uh, these days that does make a lot of sense. Um, so the first question is, how did all that useless DNA get there in the first place? Okay, most of it um, came by uh, invasions from the outside. You have viruses, you have transposable elements of many, many kinds. Uh, this so-called selfish DNA or um, transposable element enter the genome, um, and they uh, mostly die uh, immediately. Uh, it means that they are not functional anymore, but because they are in the genome, they can multiply and duplicate and, and create lots of copies. It is estimated currently that um, about two-thirds of the genome is made out of transposable elements. So, but before I move on, I, I want to clarify what, something you said. You said that our genomes were invaded. What, what do you what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Every 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 genome in the world is invaded by by foreign DNA. There are tons of mechanisms for uh, foreign DNA to become incorporated. Like whose DNA? Whose DNA is invading our DNA? Viruses like HIV, um, adenoviruses. We have transposable elements and retrotransposable elements and retroposons and retrotransposons. And I can throw at you tons of nomenclature, but these are pieces of DNA that invade our uh, genome. So, well, when did we first start to get the idea that our genome had useless DNA in it? I mean, um, I assume scientists who studied DNA back in the day would never have thought about this. Wouldn't This wouldn't have been obvious. So what's the first evidence that we have all this DNA that doesn't do anything? Actually, the first evidence that we have lots of junk DNA is quite old. It was started by a person called Herman Muller in 1950. He was uh, a very interesting guy. He got a Nobel Prize uh, for discovering uh, that... Um, radioactive radiation can cause mutations. And he realized that evolution is essentially a fight against deleterious mutations. And he made some uh, calculations. How many children uh, can we, uh, we will need to have if the entire complement of, of genes is um, functional? At that time, uh, many people believed that we have um, around six million protein-coding genes. He reasoned that if we have so many uh, uh, functional genes, and given the mutation rate that is sort of estimated already in 1950, then each of us will have to have many, 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 many children, a ridiculous amount of children for only two of them uh, to survive to adulthood. And by using this concept, which he called mutational load or genetic load, he arrived at a number that said that we have, that humans have around, around 20,000 genes. He, he uh, estimated that in 1950? Yes. Holy cow. Wasn't that just like right after the genome was discovered in the first place or DNA was discovered? Uh, DNA is, is a little bit older. It's about... Um, 
how should I put it, about 25 years older than that. Uh, actually, DNA was discovered a very long time ago. It was discovered at the end of the 19th century. Uh, but the person who discovered it did not believe uh, that it has has to do anything with heredity. Right. Uh, it is only much later, in, in 1920s and 30s, that uh, people prove that uh, DNA is the um, hereditary uh, material. Okay, so before we get too much into that, first I'd like to, to just tell some stories, or a story really, about some of this non-functional DNA, about how it came to be. And the one that I always like to start with is the alu element. And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the alu element. For our listeners, the alu is a short DNA sequence about 300 nucleotides long uh, that we all have. I and mean, it has no functions in any of our cells. And yet somehow it got copied over and over and over and over again. And it's now present in our genome of every cell of our body over a million times. Uh, so there are a million copies of this pointless um, alu sequence uh, and you have a million copies of something that's 300 nucleotides long, that's 300 million nucleotides. That's about 10% of our total genome for this one pointless thing. Professor Grauer, what is going on with ALU? Okay, so as you probably w will realize, when ALUs were discovered and the great, their great numbers were um, calculated, uh, people started immediately looking for function. Until people realized that within mammals... Only two groups of organisms have alu-like elements. It's only uh, mice and rats and other murids and primates. Uh, cows survive very nicely without them. Horses, bats, um, wolves and dogs and cats and everything else don't have alu. So people started doing comparative genomics and they realized um, that that may not be such an important element if the vast majority of mammals and the vast majority of animals and the vast majority of, of, of organisms uh, live quite nicely without it. Right, and for our listeners, the, uh, the organisms that have alu are called supraprimates. These are the primates, which are monkeys and apes and gibbons and things, and also their very closest relatives, which are rodents and tree shrews, uh, you know, a few other things. So this group of organisms, supraprimates, all have alu, but no other thing that's not a superprimate has alu. Yes, we now believe that out of the 1.1 million copies of alu within the human genome, uh, maybe two or three copies are still active. That means that they're still replicating. And in fact, we know for certain that the rate of, of multiplication of alu elements is decreasing with time. So it's, it's calming down in its uh, copying behavior. One of the things that people don't realize is that evolution is such a chancy process that even good mutations don't have such a good um, probability of getting fixed. I keep telling people, imagine that an amazing mutation uh, happens that will allow people to have 3,000 children instead of the 2.2 that they now have. Uh, but if this mutation occurs in a um, Catholic nun, it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, that's one way to put it. I'll have to remember to tell that story. I use an evolutionary meaning of function. Anything that is, has a, a, uh, that is maintained by selection. So the operational definition for me is that something is functional if it can be destroyed. Right. So if the destruction of something has some cost, it must have been doing something. But that also could 
you could lose some function with that definition in the sense that we have a lot of neutral stuff going on, right? And that could I could become functional or that has a function that doesn't necessarily aid our survival, but it doesn't mean it's doing nothing. How do you respond to that? Okay, uh, again, I, I wrote a paper about the two types of function of the genome. We have one function, which I call the literal function, which means the order of the nucleotides, the order of ACTG, is important. We have another uh, portion, which I call indifferent DNA, uh, which are functional uh, uh, elements, but the sequence is not important. These are more difficult to discover. So the only way to discover it is to remove parts of it or to remove parts of the genome and to see if it has a function or not. We must define function according to what the genome does now. Whether it has the potential to do something, that's irrelevant. That's teleology. That's, we, we cannot say that. Uh, it's like punishing a person, be, not because he committed a crime, but because he can commit a crime. I want to explore this just a little bit more because this idea of future function brings up the notion that um, even, even elements that we all agree are doing nothing or at least doing nothing helpful could one day do something helpful or maybe put it another way, could over the very long term aid what we call genome evolution, right? Because if it comes crashing through the genome randomly, of course, most of that's bad. But every now and then, can't you get some innovative mutations? Every, simply every mutation and the creation of junk DNA is a type of mutation because it's a novelty, mm -hmm. can mm -hmm. in principle be co-opted for function. It will be uh, weird otherwise. However, evolution cannot is has no prophetic powers an individual who has the potential to evolve will have absolutely no advantage over an individual who has no potential to evolve the prophetic powers of evolution are always used i mean many people write that the junk dna is essentially a spare parts assembly of of things uh, I, I i don't think so it may be but evolution cannot deal with that and and uh can you put it in perspective what is the rate of junk DNA in humans compared to other animals? Like, do we have a lot compared to like other species? What is sort? Give me this. Give me the spectrum. Okay, so the human genome is by no means the biggest genome. We have uh, rodents that have much bigger genomes. We have amphibians that have huge genomes. We even have unicellular organisms that have more genomes than uh, we do. Um, That's so fascinating. So actually, uh, uh, this is the basis of something uh, well known in molecular evolution called the C-value paradox, that the amount of DNA an organism has has absolutely nothing to do with its complexity. Currently, the, the organism with the, the biggest genome is a very nondescript plant with very small uh, white flowers called Paris japonica. It doesn't even have a common name. But this is currently the, uh, the biggest genome in the world, and it's about 50 times larger than ours. So this random plant that nobody even really knows the name of is more complicated than any human being on the planet. I would say it has more DNA than any human being on the planet. In fact, um, yeah, uh, people don't realize that the amount of genetic information that our uh, genome has, it, it's quite small. Uh, it will take about 10 genomes of humans uh, plus one genome of, of, of Drosophila to, to fill uh, the, the information that you can store on a DVD. Yeah. So actually, the, the, the horrible movie that my granddaughter is playing nonstop, Frozen, has more, more information than my genome. 
Well, Professor Grauer has just published a paper in the journal Genome Biology and Evolution that establishes what he considers an upper limit on how much of the human genome can possibly function in a meaningful way. Now, this paper takes a very interesting approach at determining holistically how much of our genome does important things. So, Professor Grauer, can you take us through, first of all, the theory behind your approach? But before you even talk about the results, what's the idea that drives your method of determining the genome's function? My entire contribution is applying a very old idea to new data on genomics. That's it. The idea is, again, by Holden and, and, and Herman Muller, and uh, their idea was that if you have a functional part in the genome, uh, it can experience deleterious mutation, and the deleterious mutation means that the, uh, that the probability of a person who, who, uh, who carries this mutation to reach reproductive age is diminished. So therefore, uh, every human population, because every human population is, is uh, uh, experiencing deleterious mutation, the number of children that have, have to be produced by each couple has to be slightly bigger than two in order to maintain, uh, to maintain a constant population size. I look at data, what is the maximum replacement level fertility that was ever recorded in historical and prehistorical times? And I found out that you cannot go above, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it was uh, quite small, I mean, like four children for two of them to be alive at reproduction. If you have many, many functional parts of the genome, given the mutation rate, you will produce every generation many, many deleterious mutants, which have a diminished probability of reaching uh, maturity. So if your genome was... Uh, entirely functional, then what you will have is essentially a need to produce more children that is humanly possible. In fact, in one of my calculations, if the 100% of the human genome is functional, you will need more children than the number of stars in the universe uh, to produce every generation for only two of them to remain alive at reproduction time. And that's, of course, ridiculous. So it's like a good thing that we have this junk DNA? No, we could have had, uh, it's not a good thing that we have junk DNA. We, we could have had, say, uh, a genome that is about, I don't know, 20% of the size of, the, uh, of what we have today, and it will be the same. It's just how many functional parts we have. Anything that has too many functional parts has more chances of, of, of becoming non-functional. As you know, simple things, um, work for long periods of time and complicated things don't. Um, that's, that's something that our listeners can identify with re very easily. Something with very few moving parts and simple function does tend to last forever. If you buy a hammer, that hammer will work longer than you're alive. That hammer will work as there's no moving part. Very simple. And if you buy a hammer that is um, cast in one part, it will last longer than a hammer made out of two parts. So the analogy here with our genome is that we have done a lot with a few genes. So we tend to have very highly functional genes, but a small number of them that we can nuance, right? We can get it to express just right at the right place in the right time. And that's what those whole regulatory sequences are all about. But more genes doesn't mean more complexity. Uh, what it means is we do more with less. Would you say that's true? Mm-hmm. So to get back to your, your paper and, and the findings, I mean, your approach certainly gave a pretty definitive answer. 
Uh, but in science, we tend to employ uh, what we call multiple lines of evidence, meaning that we don't rely on just one method of testing an idea. So what other lines of evidence can be used to determine how much of our genome actually functions? What other methods are there besides yours? Uh, one of the best evidences for, for junk DNA is the fact that we have dead genes. As you probably know, you need to eat your vegetables and your fruit, but your dog doesn't. And the reason is that he can produce vitamin C, uh, ascorbic acid, and we cannot. Uh, and the reason we cannot is that uh, our gene has died, but we still have remnants of it in the, in the genome. Yeah, I, I, I love the example of the vitamin C gene, the, the GULO gene, which, which, which helps us make vitamin C if it had been working. Um, because we do have the remnants, like you said. You can, a, a good molecular biologist can see what looks like a gene there, but it doesn't work. Molecular biology uh, methodology is uh, changing constantly. So I don't know, maybe with CRISPR-Cas, somebody will engineer a human that doesn't have to eat his vegetables. Well, that's all we need is more reason to have crappy diet, right? <laughs> anyway, no one ever gets the last word in science because uh, each generation is going to come and discover their... Their, uh, and add their contributions to the discovery. But this has been another episode of This World of Humans, and our guest today was Professor Dan Grauer from University of Houston. Thanks so much, and have a great week. You too. This has been another episode of This World of Humans, a podcast and science education initiative currently funded by John Jay College, the City University of New York, and Vision Learning. For science educators... Don't forget to check out our website for a wealth of resources to help integrate this episode and its featured article into your science classroom. Find us at visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H.